Hi, I'm Gretchen Lynch, and welcome to Impact the Podcast, where we bring together some of entertainment's most creative minds to explore the themes and philosophies behind content creation. Today's episode is a conversation with Joel Edgerton about screenwriting. How does Joel choose which stories to tell? What is his writing process? How can he compartmentalize different jobs of writer, director, and actor? And how does taking risks pay off? Today's session was recorded in conversation with Tyler Mitchell. Joel Edgerton is an actor, writer, director, producer, known for films such as The Gift, Loving, Boy Erased, and most recently, The King. Originally from New South Wales, Australia, Joel has made his presence known in Hollywood as a multi-hyphenate, but his inspiration and artistic footing began in childhood, where he drew inspiration from his father and has continued to grow his craft ever since. You know, my father is definitely the reason I think that my brother and I both became storytellers. And it wasn't because he was in the business in any way, except that he was a lawyer. And as a, as a person, he was a great storyteller. He was always, um, not always, but he, he would often drive conversation. He would often be very entertaining on a social in any social settings. And he was always uh, relied on to make speeches, whether it be at a school fate or a funeral and everything in between. And he was very clever. Um, and he understood the tone of a room in a way that uh, I think was really impressive. Um, so he could be austere and he could be funny and, and all sorts of things, but he was a raconteur. And I think that our currency with him um, in terms of how we got his attention was also about matching that style. And, you know, like we, my brother and I have a, a similar sense of humor to him. And I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of dad jokes, even though I don't have children. <laughs> so I think it's my father. And he was also, uh, he was, he would write poetry and he would draw and all of those things. I'm not a poet, but I, I do, uh, draw and, and, um, uh, um, right and and I th I'm, I'm certain he's the sort of fountain source of that and my interest to have his attention grew that aspect of my personality. I think a lot of people who define themselves as a writer maybe like me well I'll just talk to my experience I thought uh, I started writing when my brother and I you know were trying to get work as me as an actor and him as a stunt guy and Blue Tongue Films, which is the company that we uh, created or the banner that we created really started because I was a drama student who'd graduated who didn't have any work. And he was a stunt guy who was just lugging equipment for other people. And we're like, all right, let's make something to show our wares. The love of filmmaking was the byproduct of that. And so I always assumed that I became a writer around that time. And and then I realized that I was, I was always a writer. I loved writing stories. I helped write the sort of review show for our high school. Um, and it's really about what was driving that writing. Like in high school, it was about oh, someone's got to write satire and let's make this review show fun and funny. And, and it was a way of fitting into that situation. Um, it was oftentimes I was writing to plagiarize and reflect the world around me. Like I, I'm sure I was just writing as if I was plagiarizing like the style of Monty Python sketches and stuff like that, for example. Um, but now it's a different thing. And, and it, it, you know, in that early stage of my early twenties leaving drama school, the motivating factor was I need to generate my own work. And then it became, once I had a bit of a foothold as an actor, it's like, well, now I have the power to write characters that I want to play rather than wait for those things to come my way. And now it's evolved to a point I'm, I'm 46 now. And, you know, I was up this morning at six o'clock writing and, and uh, now I'm just compelled to do it because I have all these stories that I want to tell. And a lot of them are not even things that I may end up being involved with as an actor and the things I might want to direct or just produce or, or just stuff that I feel like could be a good story for someone else. So it's, it's been a, a constant thing in my life, I think since I was young, but the reasons for it are constantly evolving. And I hope that as, as those things evolve, that I'm getting better 
better and I'm picking up more clues and I'm learning more and, um, uh, you know, looking back at my mistakes in a positive way so that my next mistakes are less visible, <laughs> if that makes <laughs> any sense. As a creative, Joel has never boxed himself into a specific kind of story or lane. Although he has explored so many genres and worlds, what is at the heart of each piece of his work is a very central similarity, a core theme we can all relate to, dealing with the personal battle between good and bad. I, you know, I for a long time thought my own life was boring uh, in the sense that, you know, like what's the question of what story do we tell is a really good one. And, and you know, there's obviously a lot of debate too around like, you know, what, what, what stories should we have access to tell? And you know, my feeling about it is that um, I quite often delve into different worlds and different tones, uh, you know, and lots of things that I've, I've written that may never see the light of day or that I hope will one day see the light of day, continue to sort of jump around sort of different genres a different tone and, and different worlds. Um, but they all seem to have a common thread and I'll tell you what that is in one second. But the other as aspect of it is that no matter how far apart you seem from the world that you're creating, it's amazing how personal you can make that and how personal I think you should make that. Like wherever you're telling a story about in, in whatever part of the world or, or whether it's the past or the future or um, whatever that, the reason that's really drawing you in should be and could could be and should be very personal so that the themes within it and 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 what's happening with characters is something you you do know about even if you know it's set in space or what, whatever you're talking about i i realized that the things that i'd written on my own uh, apart from collaborate collaborative stuff all seem to share this theme um which is about people making mistakes uh, and trying to, or not being willing to correct those mistakes. And so it seemed to be this thing that's rooted in my Catholic upbringing, which is about um, the, the tension between good and bad on a personal scale and a personal sort of moral spectrum of like, um, I have this sort of mantra with a lot of it. It's like, it's not about what a person does that's as significant as what a person does next. So that if you make a mistake, that's a significant event or you, you make a moral choice that's, that's, uh, that's skewed. The real show of character for me is what a, what a person or a character does in the aftermath of a mistake. And mm -hmm. a lot of my films are about that in different ways. The Gift, for example, is about a guy, Jason Bateman's character who is unwilling to acknowledge those mistakes and it so it becomes a cautionary tale all seen through the eyes of somebody who's determining how much she knows and doesn't know her husband um, whereas um uh boy raised holds that theme in the, through the character of nicole kidman is like she's made a choice to align herself with religion and the husband uh at the cost of her son's well-being and it's about her evolution um mm. to discover that mistaken how to rectify it and it's pretty much in all of my stories and I I think as a writer sometimes we're unaware of what the common thread is even ourselves and and I started to realize that it's like shit I keep telling the same story in a different parcel yeah and I think I think maybe that's un unknowingly that's what really made me respond to the character of Henry V is, is uh, when I did the plays years ago, why it kept in my mind maybe is because it is partially um, anchored to that theme of, of going along willingly and on a certain path and then acknowledging um, all too late, perhaps that the motivating factor, um, we, we obviously change certain things within the, our own film version of it to amplify our own political points of view and stuff. But, you know, to, to go so far down a road of damage and then look up and go, oh, have I done the right thing? So that character almost comes to that conclusion just before the credits roll. Right. Why do you think you gravitate towards that theme, I guess, in your, in your work? I have a massive relationship with um, guilt and uh, the wrestling with, with good action versus bad 
action. In fact, I, I quite often used to think when I was about to do something, uh, you know, like if you're about to do something and you, and you think it, it's a good or a bad thing or it's selfishly motivated, is to imagine yourself in a movie about yourself and that you're also in the audience and, and go, okay, when I do this thing, am I now the hero of the story or have I now become the villain of the story? I think my Catholic upbringing I was so deeply scared of God um, and that the feeling like God was always watching me. And I'm really interested in the wrestling of, uh, do we feel bad because we feel bad or do we feel bad because we feel like other people are watching us? So is, is contrition and um, guilt and remorse attached to our need to feel loved in the world? And that if a tree falls in the woods and, uh, and no one's there to hear it, like if we commit an act and we know we're in a completely private space, can we then get on with our lives? But the moment someone goes, hey, I was in the woods and I saw you do that, that suddenly you, you bring yourself into the, the world of, of moral uh, self-retribution and, and self-examination you know, self and remorse. Yeah. Yeah. I, by the way, I don't think I've done, I've got terrible skeletons in my closet. <laughs> I'm amazed at how much I wrestle with the, the oscillation between good and bad and, um, and, having, and having a conscience and how that brings anxiety up for me. So I, I think the movies allow me to, you know, I love movies where people lie to each other. I love movies where, where there's deceit and obviously drama is all about, you know, generally not great things happening and people wrestling with that. So the movies is a safe place for that to play out and for you to play out your own feelings about all that stuff. Joel is an infinite learner and has made it a priority to continue to learn throughout his career. He believes education never ends. And as a multi-hyphenate, he's able to utilize skills from different areas of his career to become a better, more well-rounded creative in all aspects of his work. Uh, being, being in the theater really, really taught me to be in love with being an actor. Um, you know, I think they're very different. Like, Theatre is a very actor-driven uh, medium. I think film um, should be a very writer-driven thing, but is sort of a, you know, it's, it's writer-director-driven, I think, because they're the ideas that are, that are being pushed forward. Um, I think more, more than anything, what's affected me as a, as a writer and as a director has been being an actor and reading countless amounts of scripts, good and bad, things that were good that I didn't really, really like necessarily appreciate the genre, but starting to sort of read so many screenplays, television and film that you started going, oh, this is amazing. The way this person renders uh, screen direction is, is inspiring or, you know, the way this person um, harnesses the energy of, of a film that's not yet made through the rhythm of, writing or this person is amazing at writing dialogue it feels so real and accurate this person not so much so so being able to steer your own ship forward as a screenwriter by reading so many screenplays i think has been a real education for me inadvertently because i thought i was auditioning for a role but the osmosis of reading that script mm -hmm. stuck with me um joe carnahan and his brother um write these very uh masculine um uh, robust and violent sometimes screenplays and having read a couple of them I was like oh there's a talking about that energy thing these short sentences these and it's almost like editorially you're getting a flavor of the energy of the film mm. through words on a page the amount of full stops double dashes all sorts of so I'm a real fan of writers harnessing the energy of their screenplay within the screen direction uh, and dialogue that's on a page. And the page should start to become an energetic representation of the, the film that, that you want it to be. Yeah, and I, I feel like there are some rules worth examining for yourself. Like, uh, like for example, as an actor, I don't like it when I get to a, a line where it's, you know, he breaks down in tears in brackets, you know, and then he says this line of dialogue. It's like the pressure, for example, that puts on an actor, um, you know, but then again, if that's what you want to say and that's what the emotion you're looking for, how do you say that in, in your own way 
So those rules are there um, and there's, there's potholes. But another one, for example, is I don't believe that you shouldn't be allowed to write interior thought if it's significant to the reader in that moment. You know, we often talk about just describe what you see, um, just talk about what's, what the camera is, is seeing and, and what you hear, um, you know, and then what is said. Um, to think that within a dinner party scene that you can't succinctly inject yourself into the interior thought of a central character is like somebody says that there's a rule that you shouldn't do that. I say fuck that rule because um, if that is going to make someone get a better read on the screenplay, you know, don't go into half a page of uh, an interior monologue of a character, but if, if you want to describe a physical action and then underline disappointment or underline um, the joy um, in some way that uh, I say, why not? With all of that being said, it's still important to be able to separate the different aspects of your career so that you don't cross over a line with other creatives. And by staying in your lane, you have an opportunity to be more observant and learn even more from the people around you. I think it's important to have demarcation lines on uh, create spaces within a collaboration. Um, it's different if, if a director comes to me and says, look, hey, look, I really like stuff you write. I, wanna, I want you to help me evolve this thing. If that's the contract, sure. But I'm very careful to kind of step outside the boundaries of assumption that I could contribute where I'm not really needed. Um, as, a, as an actor, I think it's important to... Um, point out under the caveat of it's just my opinion, but I feel like there's a, there's a gap in logic here or, or, or whatever. But, you know, um, I do believe that under, under anything that heads into undermining territory is um, becomes a tricky thing. If it's not a kind of an unspoken or a, if it's not a contractual agreement on a, on a, just a personal level. Um, I, I've definitely, um, suspected after making my first film, The Gift, that worried that I'd go to the next set and suddenly be sticking my nose in where it wasn't necessary. I was surprised at how much I was just willing to just sit back and do my job as an actor. I definitely felt like I was in safe hands as well. But all I was interested in from that point on was what lens a filmmaker was putting uh, or a cinematographer was putting on the camera, because I think I was just quietly sitting back and just trying to learn more going, all right, so I know that the scene says this, and I know that the director has this kind of a approach to what he or she wants to say. Um, and so I'm curious about what, what box they're going to put around that, that, that piece of information. So it was really about um, lens size, but the, the presumption to sort of jump in and go, Hey, you know, let me take care of this. I think actors in Hollywood have too much power in that regard. Like, um, I do have a firm opinion that if you're embarking on a project, it's, it behooves you, I rarely say that word, uh, it behooves <laughs> you to have lots of uh, in-depth uh, scrutiny of a script with an actor to make a grants on things like, um, but you're okay with everything that's laid out in this screenplay. Like, you know, whether it's about uncomfortability of a scene, um, extremities of violence or sex, for example, um, whether it's about ethics, the one thing you don't want to do as a, as a filmmaker, I think, is turn up on set and then waste two hours talking about something that you could have had a conversation with uh, in rehearsal or in the casting process or, or whatever. Not to say that things might not come up on the day that you need to be uh, malleable to, to examining, but I mean, I think that as, a, as a, looking at it, I've, I'm a, one of the believers, and I hope other people, I'm sure other people might share this sentiment that, it, that, it, that a good house doesn't hold up without a great foundation, and that screenplays are the foundations of a good movie, and they're the, they're the one thing that gives you hope to know that that movie will be good. When people start building their house without a foundation, it's very, very uh, uh, unusual and uh, troubling. Um, they're an exact, they're a frequent example. Hollywood. Pardon? 
too frequent in Hollywood. Like they got the release date out before they even have a script. Yeah, or we're like, we're gonna start shooting without a third act or, or any of that stuff. Um, you know, screenplays are, you know, the most important component up to a point. Um, it's what attracts talent, the director, the actors, um, to then uh, presume to be able to go into that process without one is fucking weird, I think. The film industry, regardless of what role in it you play, is collaborative. Joel has built his company, Blue Tongue Films, with this in mind. The value of a support system and fostering creative community is invaluable, and having somebody to make you take that step forward and cheer you on could be exactly what you need. Uh, one of the big benefits of having a, a group that uh, have known each other for a long time that you know, we're not all exactly the same filmmaker. We, we share sensibilities and we disagree and we, um, we have interests that are separate from one another's. But the greatest thing is finding people that you know and trust so that you can, you can get the criticism quicker um, before the thing is finished. You know, like once the film's finished and it's out there in the world, it's sort of, it's uh, too late. And the only, the only thing it's not too late for is for you to learn for the next incarnation of whatever story you can tell. So you can learn, learn from the last movie to hopefully benefit you in the future. But before a film has been shot, you've got a screenplay that can be, you know, really kind of malleable. Um, you've got a rough cut of a film that you can have people put their eyes on and give you objectivity. One of the benefits of Blue Tongue is that um, you have people that are willing to have the harder talks with you about what's wrong with something. You know, it's much easier to read someone's screenplay and be like, good one, man, pat on the back. Um, and while that feels good, I think it feels better ultimately if you can uh, not be offended by having a relationship with someone who's like, I didn't understand that, or I, I think you're not going far enough or, or whatever the criticism is. And that's the biggest benefit of having a team. The other benefit is um, you get to grow and have a dialogue of shorthand with people as you continue to work. Um, and you inspire each other along the way. Cause like, you know, someone will make a film and put it out there in the world and the rest of us are like, Oh, I want to have that feeling, you know? Um, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, great benefits to it. I was always impressed when I came out as, as a, you know, young actor trying to get a job of, you know, looking at guys like Rob Conley and Ron Woods, that they were, they were forging a path together. These sort of collaborators that stick together and they keep moving forward. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to always roll as a gang either. I mean, I'm doing all my own separate things. David's doing all his own separate things. And then we all cross pollinate and we all assist where it's needed. Um, in formal and informal ways. Yeah, just finding the people that you um, like and like spending time with, because, you know, making a film, writing a film uh, is, is done often in isolation, but um, lots of aspects of the filmmaking process are really about being part of a community and you want that community to be a fun place to be as well and, and it's a long journey. So if you can kind of stick with people uh, and bring people in when you need and, and um, consider yourself a sole operator, but also one that, you know, has other people on the bat phone to give advice or visit your set or read a script. That the, the, the value in those relationships and keeping them together, I think is, is I, I don't think I would have made the gift if it wasn't for that collaborative um, group because I was tip, it was like I was the guy that wanted to go for a swim but thought it might be too cold and everyone else was like you'll be fine it'll be you you know it'll be great once what do you what's that saying about swimming it's great it's great once you're in you know and I was just unwilling to yeah I was unwilling to take the plunge and Nash's hand was on my back sort of just gently pushing me in and going just do it man like you you might love it um so confidence is the other aspect. It's like having, having the confidence by seeing it in the reflection of other people's opinion of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, like, once you know, you're in. You could end up wasting a lot of time dipping your toe in. And like, what if you have a screenplay that's actually 
like solid gold, but you don't have the confidence or you don't have the avenues or, you know, it's why a program like this is fantastic because access is a problem for some people. Um, confidence is a problem for others. Um, you know, having someone else read your screenplay and go, there is like, this is not a pile of rocks. This is actually like iron ore or gold or a gemstone. And you could go, oh, right, I've had that feeling. But now that you're saying it, that gives me confidence to be on my toes rather than on my heels. So, um, you know, having access is, it's a really tricky thing because everybody's got to find their way to push down the door, um, you know. And once you do, it's amazing how it can really start to feed your mojo. Um, and, and sometimes people, the thing that limits people is that they don't have, they don't have access to their own well of, of mojo. Um, and, and being, uh, having access to that mojo, I think is also about being okay with sort of doing and failing or doing and not doing as well as you think it should be. Because, you know, my relationship with criticism is that for 24, I write things down. I ask lots of advice from different filmmakers on screenplays and I write them down because my initial impulse is often emotional. It's like, oh, you don't get it or, or hopefully you're wrong or why don't you understand what I was trying to um, convey? And then I listen for, I sit with it for 24 hours and then try and bring myself to the point of going, okay, there must be a reason for that opinion. And then do I, do I now want to take that on board? and how, or do I reject it for the right rational reasons? Right. Every writer has a different writing process. For Joel, writing is an all-consuming experience. Joel's also incredibly driven and has lots of irons in the fire at once. For example, he wrote Boy Erased while making the film Red Sparrow. And during coronavirus quarantine, he vowed to write three feature films by August. And he did just that. Uh, once I get into that space of start, when I actually start writing the screenplay, I have to be careful that I consider the rest of the world around me to still be part of my life, you know, cause I get a, a very OCD. So once I, I find it very hard to focus, but once I do focus on something I really care about, which is why I only really write the things that I'm obsessed with. And once I start, it's almost like, there, I mean, when I wrote Boy Raised, I, I was writing and not eating and, and um, you know, I had, to, I had to also be mindful to eat food and take care of myself on the side of it. Um, in terms of, like, tricks to get yourself motivated, one of the things that I've been experimenting with is I, I waste the first couple of hours of my day usually. Um, I've become a statistician of coronavirus. Uh, it's like my <laughs> sideline profession. I look at the stats every morning and I get worried about the state of America and, you know, through sure. my own thoughts about the business and how friends are going. And then I'm looking at the news and, and I, you know, I can't help but look at the news. But one good trick for me is like turn my internet off in the morning um, because those morning hours are the ones that tend to be the quietest um, and no distraction and just say, all right, well, I'll read my emails at like 12 o'clock and I'll read the news at 12 o'clock um, because if I do that, then I have, you know, three good solid hours to, to write in uninterrupted without hearing my email beeping on my phone and um, all that stuff. That, that to me feels like a good thing to do. I used to write until all hours of the morning, but then I recognized that my brain atrophies at a certain point. So I'm better off being sharp and writing during the day. I think if you understand yourself well enough, you'll know when are the good times and the bad times uh, to write. And also uh, Nick Enright, who is a beautiful Australian playwright that I once worked with, who's now no longer in, on the world, in the world. Um, he wrote uh, Lorenzo's Oil, the screenplay Lorenzo's Oil, but he was mainly a, a playwright. He said something really interesting one day to me, which I have often thought about. He said, I don't exhaust all of my ideas in one session. So that yeah. if he gets towards the end of the session that he said, I, I write between 12 and four, rather than spilling into five and six, he said, if I'm 
if I know I've got fresh ideas, I'll write down notes for them because he said, I know that tomorrow when I get up, I'll know where to start. Whereas yep. if he write up that well and then got up the next morning, there's a risk that he might suffer from a little writer's block or, or not, not know where to steer the ship next, you know? And I thought that was kind of a cool bit of advice. If that's your personality, I'm not of that mind. So I'm just like, if I want to keep writing and I can, <laughs> I've got friends who write like, uh, almost like they, they look at every word and it's like they polish every word and then they put it in place, you know, as in they're very considered with the way that they render words on a page. So some writers take a long time to render what they do. And other writers are like, you know, like machine gun spray on the page. So there's no right or wrong way of doing it. So deadlines can often be about backwards engineering of going, okay, if I'm that writer, that has to get up and pace around my room and speak all the dialogue. And so whatever your process is, it's almost like you have to think about your deadline and go, okay, well, if I'm that considered, I need to really knuckle down and start working. Or if I'm a machine gun sprayer and then I need two weeks to like not think about it and then come back to it. So then how do you engineer your time or schedule your time? So it's, that can be such a personal process too. Right, yeah, for sure. There is no golden ticket answer for how to make it in Hollywood. Joel's advice is to not be afraid to take risks and use failure as an opportunity to learn and improve your craft. Again, it's all like uh, being an actor or being a writer or a director or any kind of artist is, is such a personal journey. And, you know, uh, advice is different from just reflection on one's own experience because so much of it is about what you learn along the way, who you run into, what risks you're willing to take. For me, a couple of the big things I realised is, is my willingness to take risks, you know, to work in the theatre and then go, okay, I want to explore film and television, but theatre's holding me back because I'm stuck in these long plays. So taking the risk of going, I'm going to stop that and, and endure this sort of eerie silence of whether or not I could even be employable in a different realm. Um, uh, you know, so there's there's a certain risk-taking element to just backing yourself and trusting that you'll land on your feet, I think is, um, is a courage gamble worth taking if you, if you really do have faith in what you want to achieve in your world. You know, my Hollywood experience as a writer was very stumbly, as was my acting one. It's like a slower evolution. And I feel like I've got about four or five screenplays that I wrote in my 20s that what they do is they serve me to stand on top of them to have a better view of how to be a better writer. Like some of them I, I might be embarrassed to even share, but I know that by writing them, I learnt, you know, that less mistakes thing and a little bit less and got a bit better. And so those things, they might sit in a drawer, but they're, they're as valuable as a movie made, I think, mm. is feeling that first sort of, print out of your first screenplay should fill you with pride. You know, that warm print out of a script and you're like, oh, this is mine. It's like a comfort pillow of achievement or something. And I remember those feelings of immense pride when I knew a screenplay was finished. Um, so, you know, I, I tried to develop things in Hollywood and, and you know, nothing ever sort of came of, of that. Um, and then, you know, just once you get that first thing made, again, that sense of pride of, of knowing you can um, produce your own story as a short story, as a short film, as a bigger film, um, is to really enjoy the pride of having achieved any step of that process, but, but to not, I guess, get carried away with that pride and always realise you can learn from everyone around you and you can you can constantly um, evolve. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a tough world, but, uh, you know, it's a tough world to, to achieve the success that you want. But I think if you, I think every one of us has it inside of us to tell the story that we want to tell all the stories that, that are within us. Um, and the only way you can keep moving forward as with any physical journey is to, just keep doing it and reflecting, right. keep doing it, reflecting on it. 
um, because then you'll learn from mistakes and, and successes along the way. I think there's a difference between uh, perceiving rejection or a slower process moving forward than you hope for, as in like, this is taking forever, like for people to recognize what I can do, or I sent my script somewhere and, and I got a rejection letter or, or, or whatever. There's a difference between how you learn from that experience, you know, that rather than seeing it as uh, a big reason to be despondent or to quit or to break your pencil in half or to throw your computer in the bin or whatever, um, is to really, really examine like why. And there is no doubt that like we say, access is, is, is different. And as you evolve, like for example, I'm sure I could punch out uh, a screenplay right now that's a big pile of steaming crap and I could get it read quicker than if I'd have read a masterpiece, written a masterpiece when I was 20 and nobody knew who I was. So I have access. And I have that access because I've stumbled my way along. So what if you feel like you've written something that has value and you don't get that access? Um, so it, again, it's very personal and I don't know what that screenplay is that, that's uh, stopping someone from getting access that might be great. But ask yourself the questions about how you can learn from it, how you can be how you can be better. I definitely felt a little bit despondent along the way, but I always felt like, okay, there's something I'm missing here. Um, and I would go back and read screenwriting books, looking for clues. I would read other screenplays and I'd watch movies and go, okay, this is a movie I loved. And what was the screenplay? Uh, what did that look like? You know, um, I've recently, uh, I, you know, and, I recently had the pleasure of chatting with uh, Andrew Stanton, who was one of the, you know, yeah. Pixar creators. And, and I was lucky to do that because I went to the Arkansas Film Festival and uh, Film Society and he was one of the guest speakers. And my friend Jeff was like, can you come and show a movie? And I spent as much time as I could picking Andrew Stanton's brain because I think the guy's a master storyteller. You know, he's he's behind movies like Wally and and... Finding Nemo and, and all of the Toy Story movies. And he was in all of those writers' rooms or he came up with the idea for the, the films himself. And he put me onto a new book called, um, I don't know how new it is actually. It's a guy called John York. I think his name is got a film writing screenplay book, uh, Into the Woods, same as the title of the musical. And, um, you know, it just gives you a different angle to go, okay, well, I think I'm a screenwriter now but why can't I also learn from someone who's a spokesperson about this stuff? And I could cherry put, pick good ideas from that book. He, um, he breaks down uh, films into a five act structure, which essentially is looking at the second act of a film, which is, you know, we all can imagine the graph that we've seen in other screenwriting books. And he looks at the second act and breaks the second act into its own three act structure. Um, and there's incredible wisdom in that book and and so i guess that point is like don't ever presume that you know everything even if you do get your film made is like keep going back to university as in keep looking for clues that you think i mean the terrible perception is that you're moving forward and that information or learning is behind you because you've got to turn back and go re-examine your own work have a look for other clues read books look at the world around you um, so I, I love uh, looking at the structure of movies as well. I think it's important to look at movies as pure insight and intuition and characters from a place of pure unbridled uh, creativity. But I think it's also important to understand the science of and structure of storytelling, even if it's so you then throw it away. It's like looking at... Um, you know, paintings of Picasso and realizing, oh yeah, he can also really paint. Like he can really, he could paint a man and a woman to look like the woman and man that they are, but he chose not to do it, you know? So I'm really fascinated, even though I'm not that scientific in my thinking about the science of 
screenplays, how characters uh, exchange energies, how they start one place and what that arc looks like and how um, leaving the comfort of the character's sort of safety zone, you know, all of those things that we've learned about in screenwriting books are really valid and, and sometimes they're valid just to acknowledge them but decide not to use them. So as a writer, what is the key to pulling in an audience's attention or captivating a reader diving into your script? How do you make somebody lean forward in their seat instead of turning off the TV? Or how do you entice a person to invest the time into reading your screenplay? Yeah, my latest thing, I become fascinated with how you start a story. You know, because, you know, thinking about when people tell you stories, what's that thing that makes you go grab your beer and know that you're in for a good story. And I keep talking about being in a pub and telling jokes and all that stuff, but you know what I'm talking about. The, when yeah. someone goes, oh, hey, I've got to tell you something. And you go, oh, I'm all in, like I'm all ears. And I'm really interested in how uh, certain films and filmmakers grab an audience in that first five minutes. Um, let them know uh, that they're in safe hands. Let them know that um, the tone introduce them to a world and and also but do that in a really uh exciting way that that just grabs your audience and you go there's no you can't turn away from this story and that that opening of the story should also hint to what's at stake here in this whole hour and a half that you're asking them to invest you know which is does it hint to, to theme? Does it hint to your premise, you know, your premise that you're going to drive towards a conclusion for? Um, and in that same way, I think that every scene of a film should be flipped and examined in all different ways too. It's like, all right, well, if this is a scene about uh, a boy meeting a girl or a boy meeting a boy or uh, uh, two people confronting each other over something, you've written it a particular way, ask yourself, is it the most uh, exciting way? And is there another way of doing it? Is there a way of doing it without words? Is there a way of doing it that takes in the genre that your film reflects, but does it in a new way? Um, or in fact, thinking that way, are you trying to be too clever? And is there a more simple way of doing it? Is, is to just look at what you've done particularly in the rewriting process and go, is there another way of doing this? That could be more exciting. It could be uh, sh more shocking, more funny, more surprising. And, and, um, and maybe that process just teaches that you that your instincts were right in the first place. Um, I remember there was a first line of a book. I can't even remember the name of the book now, but it was years ago. And I remember because I had talked with friends, the first line of the book, pardon me, was um, a short sentence that said, they met in the bath. And I was just like, oh, there's, there's so few words in that sentence, but it immediately just gets your imagination flowing and makes you want to know who are these two people that met in the bath and why did they meet in the bath? Were they siblings? Were they, you know, like, you know, That's and very interesting way line. Yeah. And so I think a lot about that. Do you, do, do you let your audience gently stroll into a story or do you right. really kind of grab them by the neck? And that's often dictated by what, what story you're telling. Um, I'm a big fan of mystery is like, you know, invite them in with, asking them a question rather than giving them an answer, you know, pose some sort of thing that's that, uh, going to hold them in, uh, you know, rather than, um, I don't know. And I'm also, uh, you know, how you introduce character in the most interesting way too. I think quite often we think the best way of doing it is to let the audience know too much about a character and, and not let them just discover it. Uh, themselves. I had a debate with someone the other day about, I did a movie with Jeff Nichols called Midnight Special and, and the, the I, I actually saying this will probably spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but, you know, seeing a character do something and then later you find out a piece of information about that character that makes you go, oh, that holds, 
that that puts that act of violence into so much more perspective now rather than doing it the other way around is is know about a person then see him commit an act of violence both are valid but what is arguably more exciting to me right is to let an audience pick up pieces of a character when it's necessary rather than me as a screenwriter have a sort of when i was a kid my dad used to take me camping speech within the first five minutes he go all right, well, now I'm bored because you told me everything and I don't get to discover it for myself. With the current state of the industry, there's a constant struggle between getting personal artistic films made in this climate where large tentpole movies dominate the box office. So how do you balance scale with characters and theme to make a film that will resonate and be successful? There's a big divide at the moment and has always sort of been, but maybe getting more so between the big event movies that that um, uh, are com- like, let's talk about commerce versus art and how, you know, the struggle to get art out there. And you might have a story that's a very personal drama that's set in a small town um, and that might perceivably be harder to get made and finance than something that is like a big smash em up you know, asteroid hitting the earth movie. And and that is true. But I think the same scrutiny of how you go about writing in the writing process should be the same. That that someone doing the bigger thing should never lose sight of character and humanity. Um, and that the person on the, the sort of independent lower realm, however you want to describe that, that more difficult drama, um, should never lose sight of scale and the scale of theme and and environment um, because there's a way that bigger movies uh, destroy themselves by relying on effects and not um, understanding that what we go to the cinema for is to, to watch human beings um, yeah. wrestle with things, uh, whether it's funny or, or, or dramatic. Um, and I think sometimes you think, oh, because I've got a small budget, I can't, I can't be visually appealing. I, all I can do is just have words in a room. But theme is as big as an asteroid hitting the, the earth and, and more significant. And that gives you scale. And, and mm-hmm. opening up your camera also gives you um, scale. And if you scrutinise a screenplay of characters on either end of the spectrum, they should be met by the same standards of cause and effect, whether that's plot. You know, plot is easy to, uh, to describe and plot is easy to... Um, to observe, I think. What's more difficult is the cause and effect of characters and how they how they interact and how one character moves through a world and how you know a relationship between two people as two separate characters together move through a world. I often do um, a pass on a screenplay, uh, like after I've finished a couple of drafts of something, I'll do like say I've got 10 characters, I'll do 10 passes on that screenplay where I just pick a certain character and I go through and I just look at just that character. And then I look at another character, then I'll look at, okay, there's a husband and wife here. And then there's a father and a son relationship that's significant and a mother and daughter's relationship that's significant. And I'll do a pass just about the father and the son. And that might be a really quick exercise but in just focusing on that relationship, you may just find one missing link or you might find one connective tissue that makes the whole thing resonate more. Um, and uh, I, think, I think that's a really valuable exercise that I've discovered along the way is really worth scrutinizing your screenplay from different angles through the prism of each character, um, through the prism of the environment. Like what's your environment as a character? And do a pass on that, you know. I think as a writer, you know, if you were if you're examined about your own piece of writing by an actor, for imagine yourself being questioned by a director wanting to direct your thing, or or your writer director and, and an actor's like, hey, why does you know why does uh, my character say this, or why does my character do that? Your answer should never be no or I'm not sure. Um, you know, as, as significant in each detail, I think, as the question of what's this movie, you know, if, if the answer to any of those questions is I'm not sure, or, or you know, fine if you want to go like, um, 
you know, should the curtains be red or green? If you're not a design oriented person, then yes, you, you hire the right heads of department to help you make those right decisions. But in terms of character, story, intention, all that stuff, you, you need to be like the world's expert on your world or your, your screenplay. Like, like no one ever has been a university professor on your screenplay, but you're the guy or you're the girl. And when people say, why? You go, oh, because blah, blah, blah. Joel is a very forward thinking person, but we asked him to reflect for a moment and if he could go back in time and give his younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Ooh, I'd definitely be patient. I mean, you know, be, be aggressive, but also be patient. I, I look, I mean, for me, I always wish I could go, you know, back to where I grew up and, and say to my 10 year old self, it's like, oh, you want to leave the kind of shit we're going to do that. Um, but then I reckon I'd ruin myself by saying that. So, you know, all oh, that Shakespeare. I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad I didn't have an Oracle version. Of, like I probably wouldn't recognize it. Fuck. First of all, you look like some busted up uh, sailor. Um, had that. Um, and yeah, cool. We can grow a beard when we're older. That's great. Um, but you know, definitely to understand, um, look, I wish I'd set goals. I think that's, that's probably my answer. I just sort of ambled along in life and reacted along the way. I wonder what was possible if I'd have actually had the intention, you know, by, by this, I want to do this in my life. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Joel Edgerton. And don't forget to follow at Impact Imagine on Instagram and Twitter to stay up to date. We'd like to thank our Impact speakers for their time, wisdom, and supporting the creative community. We would also like to thank Impact's founders, Ryan Grazer, Ron Howard, and Tyler Mitchell for making this all possible. Until next time, I'm Gretchen Lynch, and have a great day.